0: Three Vs now govern our future. There's the virus, of course, and now there's the vaccine to counter it. And then the great complication. There are the variants.
1: Today, confirmation of six people testing positive for a new concerning variant, first found in Brazil. It can spread more quickly than the original version.
0: Variants of SARS-CoV-2, the virus behind the pandemic, have caused spikes in infection rates around the world and could possibly damage the effectiveness of vaccines. Does
2: it spread more easily between people? Does it make people sicker? Is it less well neutralised by vaccines? But how do scientists track down a variant before it has
0: a chance to get a grip? And how do they identify the ones that should most worry us?
2: Knowing if any new variant has any of those properties and watching as they spread around the world is, I think, super important in helping to make informed judgments. You're
0: listening to Stories of Our Times on The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the great virus variant hunt. From government briefings...
2: Thanks to the brilliant team who've been working so hard over the past week, we've now successfully identified the sixth case of the variant of concern first identified in Manaus in Brazil. To
0: TV news headlines...
1: No time to rest on our laurels with breaking news this evening with a very worrying new variant on our shores.
0: Variants of the virus are appearing everywhere. It sometimes seems that you can pick a place on a world map and they'll have their own. But it was only last December that the general public really started becoming aware of the threat.
1: 18 million people in England and all 3 million who live in Wales have seen extra Covid restrictions come into force today. As ministers said, a new variant of coronavirus is out of control.
0: When the government went back on its plans for families in England to celebrate Christmas as usual, it was a variant they blamed. Given the early evidence we have on this new variant of the virus, the potential risk it poses, uh, it is with a very heavy heart. I must tell you, we cannot continue with Christmas as planned. But since the earliest days of the pandemic last year, scientists have been tracking variants such as the so-called Kent variant, which took hold at the end of 2020, trying to get ahead of the viral mutations and give us all a chance to live a normal life. This process fascinates us here at Stories of Our Times, so I've been speaking to two of the scientists involved in the COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium, or COG-UK. It's a national project involved in sequencing the genome of hundreds of thousands of virus samples taken from positive tests all across the country.
2: The genome sequence of the virus can be used in a number of different ways in tracking the epidemic. Dr Jeff Barrett is the director of the
0: COVID-19 Genomics Initiative at the Wellcome-Sanger Institute near Cambridge. They're the biggest contributor to COG-UK.
2: Every day, scientists and engineers at the network of Lighthouse Labs process tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of tests and a random selection of those, the waste material of those tests after the PCR is done are sent in refrigerated vans from those sites to our facility outside of Cambridge. And we put in place this kind of wall of back of a lorry size temporary freezers in one of the car parks on the campus. And then we have teams working seven days a week to basically pull out these thousands of samples. We receive something like half a million a week now. And take them through a process, through a combination of people sifting through them, as well as high-speed robotics that are driven by algorithms to pick randomly from essentially all over the country, and take those materials and put them into the high-throughput genome sequencing facility that we have on the campus. It's one of the biggest in the world and was involved, for example, in the Human Genome Project when Sanger was first founded about 25 years ago. Each week, up
0: to 30,000 completely randomly chosen samples of positive tests from across the UK are sequenced to determine the strain of COVID-19 responsible for infecting the person sampled. This process is replicated at other labs across the country. The genetic sequences discovered are fed into a central server accessed by virologists and public health scientists – a gigantic analysing centre and clearinghouse for information on the virus.
2: Those sequences give a moment by moment snapshot of the variation in the virus around the country, helping scientists understand A, what's happening, and B, working out the responses needed. For example, this surveillance data revealed something that was very unusual happening in the southeast of England late last year. Over the last few days, thanks to our world-class genomic capability in the UK, we have identified a new variant of coronavirus, which may be associated with the fastest spread in the southeast of England. And really what we started to see as we looked at the stream of data coming off was the exact same genome sequence over and over again in one part of the country. And, and that's pretty unusual because this virus, like all viruses, accumulates mutations over time in its genome, and most of those don't do anything, and they just serve as a kind of useful barcode that we can use to track it as it transmits from person to person and place to place. But what we saw in the case of the so called Kent variant, what's now known as B117, is that it was spreading really quickly in one part of the country and over a you know a period of a few weeks it became clear that that wasn't a coincidence but there was sort of statistical analyses that demonstrated that that variant of the virus does spread faster and as we now know it it raced through the whole country and has essentially got to the point where 99% of new infections of coronavirus today in the UK are B117 that was the first variant and so at the time when we found it we didn't really know exactly what we were looking for
1: when we look backwards it was first in our database on the 20th of September. But as a single virus, we wouldn't necessarily pick that out out of the you know many, many hundreds of thousands of viruses that we now have. Sharon Peacock
0: is Professor of Public Health and Microbiology at the University of Cambridge, but she's also the Director of COG UK and is the woman behind the consortium.
1: The first signal really was that in Kent there was a surge of cases. It was really a kind of clinical um, and public health signal that... In Kent, cases were surging despite being in lockdown and despite the fact that it wasn't happening anywhere else. There were several reasons to explain why that might be happening. The first is that it might be due to pure chance. The second is that there might be something about the virus that is linked to its behaviour that makes it more transmissible. And so an investigation was carried out. And so by the end of November, it appeared that the cases were continuing to surge and around that time and into early December, there was a connection made with the genotype of the virus.
0: Genotype is the genetic constitution of an organism. It determines that organism's hereditary characteristics.
1: There was a dawning that this genotype may be associated with the surging cases and may be associated with the transmission. But even then, you have to be careful because we do know that particular lineages do surge in some places by chance. And so then there was a very detailed investigation of whether this was more transmissible, looking looking at the reproduction rate, looking at lineage expansion, and looking at modelling. And that really helped us understand by kind of early middle of December, that there appeared to be not just an association, uh, but a cause and effect that the surging cases and transmissibility appeared to be a function of the virus itself.
2: So as our surveillance carries forward into the future, we know that if we see another situation where a new variant arises with a lot of mutations, especially those in the spike protein, which is one of the virus's proteins that is the most important in terms of how it binds to human cells, and so a lot of the kind of human virus immune action is happening at the spike protein. So if we see lots of mutations and lots in spike, that's a, a kind of warning sign. And now, because we've learned that, we can sort of turn on that flashing light more quickly than we were able to in the past, as we ourselves have evolved our understanding of how the virus is changing and how we should respond.
0: Going back, right the way back to the beginning of the pandemic, at what point did COG UK get involved and why was it at that moment?
1: There were people around the country, really, who were experts in pathogen sequencing and had used pathogen sequencing for the last 10 years for public health purposes. So I'd used it to track outbreaks of MRSA. Other colleagues had been using it for antibiotic resistance, for some people had gone to West Africa to support sequencing of the Ebola virus in 2015-16. In and so there were many of us thinking when this pandemic started to develop that sequencing was going to be a vital tool. In how we track the evolution of the virus, because it's an inevitability that it will uh, evolve and change, and that some of those changes could threaten its interaction with us, i.e., make it change its biological behaviour so it's more transmissible or uh, more lethal or avoid immunity. So, way back, it was possible to predict that because viruses evolve, that it could undergo a change that ultimately could uh, prove problematic. So. We were thinking about this very early on.
0: How do you go about, I mean, without being too technical, setting up a national network?
1: It's easy to say, difficult to do. But the way that this worked was that I literally sent emails to five colleagues to say, can you ring me? And we talked and I said, look, do you think this is a reasonable idea? And they said, yes. And so... 20 of us got into a room at uh, the middle of March and we discussed how we would do this. In a day, we developed blueprints. So, how do you do it? Where do you do it? You know, what instruments do you use? Who's going to do it? And so, by the end of that day, we had written down a blueprint for how we would develop a national sequencing network in the United Kingdom.
0: Within just three days of that meeting on March the 11th last year, The Peacock Group had a proposal which they sent to Chief Scientific Advisor Sir Patrick Vallance and Chief Medical Advisor Chris Whitty, requesting funds to set up a sequencing programme. The COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium, or COG-UK, came into being before the beginning of April.
1: People have just likened it to taking off in an aeroplane whilst you're still fixing the wings on. (laughs) It was an interesting process and, and actually it was quite uncomfortable, I think, for scientists. We had to sometimes work with imperfection, so we just had to do things at pace as soon as we could and make things better as we went along. We have 12 academic sequencing sites across the country, so wherever you live there's going to be one near you, they're scattered across the country, and the four public health agencies of the United Kingdom plus the Wellcome Sanger Institute, and that formed our network from the outset and that has stayed solid throughout.
0: Going back to those very early days and you say that some sequencing was obviously happening before even this setup had been created. What were the first things you were learning about this virus from the sequencing that was happening?
1: The very first sequence that was published in January, that helped us understand that the likely predicted structure and function of the virus. And so by looking at the genome sequence, and comparing it to sequences from other coronaviruses, it was really possible to predict how this virus was constituted. And also, you know, just looking at the genetics, you can predict what proteins are in that virus. So that was really useful. And that allowed vaccine developers to get a really early head start.
0: In those early days, was it also telling you how the virus was moving? And what did it tell you about that?
1: Within a few months, we did have a good idea about that. So by April or so, and into May, we were already doing studies looking at introductions into separate studies in Scotland, but also the United Kingdom. Over the period of largely around the half-term holidays, by sequencing the virus up until May, we realised that there were numerous introductions into the country. We could tell that from a combination of modelling and the genomes and some travel history. And so in that early period, we sequenced around 10% of available viruses, compared them to the global data set. And in that 10%, we realised there were around 1,400 separate introductions uh, across the country. So by that point in the pandemic, we were using the data quite effectively in understanding the introductions and the global movement of the virus.
0: Within weeks of being set up, COG UK was already tracking the movement of the pandemic and was able to determine that Covid-19 had arrived not from one single person or from one single country of origin, but over 1,000 different people coming from many different countries.
1: We were concerned about entry of the virus from China, but actually the majority of the virus entered into the country from Spain, Italy and France. And that was a very important lesson for us and one that we need to keep in the forefront of our mind because borders and border controls are, you know, one plank in our control of the virus. The other thing that happened early on around March was that a mutation occurred in the genome. It's called D614G, which actually was really a forerunner to what's happening today in that it appeared to be associated with a greater transmissibility of the virus. Now, we studied this and we demonstrated a very small increase in transmissibility. And this particular mutation really travelled across the world quite quickly. So now it's present in around 80% or more of all viruses causing infection. But that was like a kind of training ground, if you like, for thinking this is how mutations can actually occur and the impact that they may have in you know, the global family, if you like, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. That's really interesting. Very,
0: very early on, from the originally sequenced virus from Wuhan, there was already a mutation making it more transmissible from the almost the earliest stage.
1: Yes, there was quite a lot of debate at the time about whether it was more transmissible or not, and the effect was quite small. But since then, some further work has been done in animal models and it does appear to be more transmissible. So that was really our first red flag, if you like, of how we need to look for the emergence of mutations and the potential for change in in the biology of the virus. By tracking the changing DNA of the virus,
0: scientists have been able to identify trends of infection in the UK. In the summer, a new variant emerged in Spain, B one one seven seven. It quickly spread across Europe at a time when there was a low amount of disease circulating.
1: And, of course, that then set us thinking, is this a virus that actually spreads more rapidly? Or is this a chance effect of multiple introductions into a population that doesn't have much virus circulating at the time and that then actually takes off in that population? And it was actually proved to be the latter. And so this particular virus appeared to become quite dominant in the UK, but that's likely to have been a function of travel and repeated introduction through people coming back from their holidays.
0: Viral variations occur when there is a change in the virus's genetic code which can affect replication. That thing it does when it infects the cells of its host.
1: There's an explosion of replication when viruses enter a human cell then that provides an opportunity for mistakes to occur in their genetic code. And with this particular virus, there is a mechanism that it has to try and correct those mistakes, but it's not perfect. We know that it mutates around once or twice a month. What we're seeing here with SARS-CoV-2 is evolution one point in the genome at a time, largely. So it has 30,000 what's called nucleotidal bases, and so it has 30,000 parts of the genome which could be swapped out, if you like the evolution of SARS-CoV-2 is happening kind of one point at a time at the moment. Although, of course, that can build up in any given virus to cause a kind of collection or a constellation of mutations that can lead to changes in biology.
0: So just to be absolutely clear, what we're talking about here in this virus is slow change, as you say, one point at a time. If that were to be much more rapid and several points at a time, then what could evolve from that is a new strain of the virus.
1: That's exactly right. Although I think we have to be slightly careful about saying slow change, because what we've observed, particularly with the variant that was first detected in the UK, so-called B one one seven.
0: B one one seven is our old and much unloved friend, the so-called Kent variant.
1: That actually had 23 different changes, which was a surprise to us. Around the same time, actually, there's been a burst of evolution around the world with the variant first described in Brazil and South Africa. And that takes us into the discussion really about whether there's particular training grounds for evolution of SARS-CoV-2. And the hypothesis is that people that have smoldering infection, people that can't get rid of their infection, for example, because their immune system isn't working properly. So some people have the virus, in their bodies for months. And that appears to be a training ground for the virus because mutations can arise. And if they have a benefit to the survival of that virus, then then they're likely to be selected for. And it's quite possible that the virus that arose in the UK that's now across the UK did arise in somebody who had a weak immune system. And that's why this virus arose that looked quite different, actually. In, I say look genetically, it was quite different to the other viruses circulating at the time.
0: That's really fascinating because, in general, you tend to think of these things as there's a lot of virus out there. A lot of people have The viruses, the viruses in some way, the bits of virus interact and alter. Now, what you're drawing a picture of is the virus mutating within one single person. Yes. Because they have the virus in their system for so long.
1: If you look at the family tree of the virus and you put all of the viruses there that are circulating in the United Kingdom, the B117 really stands out as being quite different. And so there appears to have been something of an evolutionary leap. And so that it was really quite different, as I say, 23 changes in the genome compared with the original virus, which is actually a lot. So I think we have to be slightly careful about this concept of slow versus fast. And at the end of the day, it comes down to what any mutation does. So rather than kind of a quantitative numerical judgment it's more a case of combining that with a qualitative well what does it do as a result of that Um, and coming back to the number of infections in the world so I think the last count that I looked at was 117 million cases and that's probably a gross underestimate so the virus has had a lot of opportunity passing through humans to be able to make those mistakes and then for those mistakes to lead to a virus that's selected because it has some sort of advantage over other viruses, either more transmissible or evading immune response, etc.
0: Variations of the virus occur as the virus passes through new hosts and can make it more infectious, easier to pass on, as well as possibly affecting our body's immune response to its presence,
2: or how well a vaccine might work. So I think there are three properties of the virus biology that we really want to always understand and know and which might be changed in a variant. And those are does it spread more easily between people? Does it make people sicker? And is it less well neutralized by vaccines? And knowing if any new variant has any of those properties and watching as they spread around the world is, I think, super important in helping to make informed judgments about restrictions, lockdowns, all these kinds of things. And so the only way we can know that these different problems exist in different levels in different places is by genomic surveillance and sequencing the virus's genome. And similarly, the only way we'll see a new variant that hasn't yet arisen or been discovered is by the same way. So I think it's a, a really central piece of our ongoing monitoring of this pandemic.
0: And to put it most simply, if we're going to be able to evolve our vaccines to deal with the virus, we need to know it so the vaccine makers know it. Exactly right. I was going to ask whether or not if you saw a mutation, you could tell what its properties were likely to be, in other words, were it war transmissible.
2: There is a huge and amazing collaboration of people from many different disciplines who study, for example, the physical three-dimensional shape of the virus protein and how these mutations twiddle that around, and to try to get better at computationally and experimentally predicting, well, this change probably twiddles the shape in a way that's important from the perspective of, for example, antibodies um, binding. And so what we try to do now is have kind of live systems that are watching this feed of thousands of, of sequences every week and say, you know, ding, this one has a lot of mutations. Ding, this one has some that we can computationally predict might have different properties. And so we kind of much more quickly can be looking and focusing on the ones that could be concerning for the future.
0: Well, that's really interesting because that means, I mean, one thing that you could possibly think about this is it's an incredible set of advances. But up until now, it's been chasing a step behind the virus changes. What you're suggesting is that actually now we're able to speed up a bit and we won't be quite so behind it.
2: In many different places over the course of this pandemic... Humanity has been caught flat-footed by something about the virus. And in this case, I think now we have, you know, managed to figure out some of its tricks and can put ourselves in a position where the next time something happens, we will be able to respond more quickly.
0: Coming up, what have the variant hunters learned about this virus that has stopped the world? And are we perhaps becoming too anxious with all this talk about the threat of new, deadlier variants? Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
1: The Brazilian variant. The
0: Bristol variant. The Ken variant. The South African variant. West Coast variants. The New York variant. 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 As the media and the public has become more aware of variants of COVID, it's into a kind of variantophobia, in which we fear the pandemic will never
2: end. How rational is that? One of the consequences of this increase now in the amount of sequencing and surveillance being done in other countries is that there are new variants being publicized on a kind of daily or weekly basis. And I think it's good to know what's out there because that's obviously the first step. But I do think we have to take those discoveries sort of with a little bit of care and reflective analysis, because as soon as you start looking, you will start finding things that perhaps look a bit suspicious or a bit worrying, but not every single variant of the, of the virus by any means is going to fundamentally change important properties of it. And so I do think we have to not overreact. Someone on Twitter, Eric Topol, coined the term scariants, which I think is a good one, that we just want to be looking at variants and hopefully understanding what the virus is doing, but we don't want to be terrified of every uh, mutation that we see.
0: Yeah. And also, some names are just scarier than others, aren't they? I mean, as soon as you think of a Brazilian variant, I don't know, it sort of it conjures up images of humid climates and all kinds of possibilities in a
2: way that if you called it, I don't know, the Munich variant, it probably wouldn't. Yeah, we, we try very hard as scientists to avoid using the, the geographic names in part for exactly this reason. Also, because for some of these things, it's Possible, at least, that these variants didn't even arise in the first country that happened to spot them. It has become a bit of a challenge as the alphabet soup of different naming conventions makes it very hard to talk about B117, P1, B1, B1351. Even I've begun to slightly lose track of it all. I do know the WHO is trying to have a conversation about a kind of unified naming system, and I do hope they come up with something that, that works well.
0: And do you think also that we've learned something? through this process, about viruses that we didn't know before? That, In other words, we've taken a step change in our understanding of the process. Or do you think we're just really applying the new scientific uh, understandings to things that we've actually generally understood but we needed the greater capacity to deal with?
1: We've never sequenced as much virus like this in real time before ever. So we're learning a huge amount about how the virus evolves moment by moment, really. And we can compare that with sequence across the world. But of course, you then need to use that and apply that to observe the virus very carefully over time to try and predict the future, if you like. So vaccine developers are thinking, how do we change the vaccine to stay ahead of this virus? And so it's a combination of discovery and application for public health benefit. And that is really the most you could hope to get out of pathogen sequencing.
2: We really can start to see at a very fine scale as we change our behavior as our level of immunity in the population changes either because people have been infected or they get vaccinated we can really watch what happens to the virus and i think that means we can react more quickly and we can sort of take a, a sort of more active role in this you know this dance with the virus and you know do things like not just have the vaccines the first version of vaccines came out unbelievably fast But now we can even do things like respond with an update to the vaccines in almost no time at all. And that's a pretty amazing thing.
0: And one suggestion about about what we might have learned from this virus is that actually it's not actually infinitely changeable. In other words, it might have reached some kind of plateau or it might reach some kind of plateau whereby it's undertaken all the useful changes it can
1: undertake. that's an interesting hypothesis but at the moment it is a hypothesis so as i mentioned we had we had a burst of evolution around november where variants from around the world appear to have very similar mutations uh, through a process called convergent evolution so basically the same thing happens everywhere because it has an advantage to the virus the big question in everyone's mind now is you know have we reached a plateau in in evolution and and it's likely to be the case that the virus can only tolerate so many different mutations in a certain combination because once extra mutations are added, it could be that actually its fitness starts to wane or it loses that advantage. So there's going to be a balance here about the amount of change in the virus that it can tolerate before it's less fit rather than more fit. However, I think it's too early to say that we've reached that plateau. Most optimistically, you might say, well, we've seen everything that we're going to see, but actually I would rather be pragmatic and say what we need to do is simply keep an open mind and watch very carefully what the virus is doing, and then try and understand what that means in terms of of its behaviour and interactions with, with humans.
0: A lot of the scientific development upon which your work is based is relatively recent, and it did make me wonder whether we haven't, and this sounds bizarre under the circumstances, been incredibly lucky that this pandemic didn't hit us 20 years ago.
1: That's the first time that anyone's asked me that question, and... I, I think it's a really important one to reflect on how fortunate we are to have this technology now. So going back to 2001, if you cost up the cost of sequencing, say one bacteria any E. coli, the sort of bacterium that lives in your gut, that would have taken you 18 months to sequence one bacteria and it would have cost you half a million pounds. And now you can do that in less than a day and it costs you probably 50 pounds or so. And that change really happened around kind of 2010, 2011. And that has allowed us to undertake this kind of technology revolution really. So what would have happened 20 years ago without this technology? We would have been much less prepared in, in so many ways to effectively tackle this virus through vaccine development. We wouldn't understand that the virus is changing in such a way that we need to change our vaccines. And that's the other issue. If we had no sequence data, the speed of vaccine development, I believe, would have been uh, much lower. So all in all, I think I can conclude that the availability of sequence data has helped us respond and will help us in the future to control this virus and bring it to a point where we can learn to live with it.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, David Aronovich, and my guests, Professor Sharon Peacock, Director of the COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium, and Dr Geoffrey Barrett, Director of the COVID-19 Genomics Initiative at the Wellcome Sanger Institute. The producer was Edward Drummond, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and Sound Design was by Vulcan Kiseltog. And if you have a story you think we should be covering, maybe an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow.